even if the Second Amendment right is impinged, that does not mean that the government cannot regulate. The government just has to show good enough reason to be able to do so. And that could be, and that frequently is, preventing unnecessary deaths and injuries. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, on March 24, 2021, the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals reversed an earlier ruling and upheld the effective ban on the open carry of firearms in the state of Hawaii. Coming in the wake of multiple high-profile mass shootings around the country, the case of Young versus Hawaii is likely to be a contentious development in the ongoing gun debate. To briefly recap, back in 2011, George Young, a resident of Hawaii County, unsuccessfully applied for a carry permit twice, citing a need for self-defense. When denied, Young filed suit, arguing that Hawaii's law was inconsistent with the Second Amendment. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll discuss the debate surrounding open carry laws, the history of Young versus Hawaii, and this recent federal court ruling. Today's guest is Eric Rubin, an assistant professor of law at Southern Methodist University Dedman School of Law and a Brennan Center Fellow. Professor Rubin's scholarly interests span criminal law, constitutional law, legal ethics, legal empirics, and legal history. Currently, he's researching issues involving self-defense and the right to keep and bear arms and teaches a seminar on the Second Amendment. Prior to joining the faculty at SMU, Professor Rubin was a fellow at the Brennan Center and an adjunct professor at NYU School of Law, where he taught a course on weapons regulation. He also worked as a criminal defense attorney at Morvillo Abramowitz. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you for having me. Well, we're here to talk about uh, Young versus Hawaii, the Second Amendment, and a whole host of recent decisions, maybe even a little bit of New York State rifle. So can you give us a little bit of background on what happened with Young versus Hawaii? Sure. So this case, it's really a remarkable set of opinions that came out. But by way of background, the case is about the regulation of the open carrying of handguns in the state of Hawaii. And by open carrying, I mean carrying handguns in a way that the handguns are visible to others. The converse would be to concealed carry the handgun. Under Hawaii law, a person can obtain a license to carry a handgun openly, and they have to obtain a license if they want to do if they want to carry a handgun openly. But in order to, to get that license, they have to show sufficient urgency or need for the license. And what that means in Hawaii and in other places that have similar regimes is that the person has to show some threat to their, their person that is beyond just a generalizable fear of being attacked. And George Young challenged this restriction in Hawaii, and the case went all the way up to an en banc panel of the Ninth Circuit, which ultimately upheld the law. So, Eric, how does the colonial history of Hawaii play into Young versus Hawaii? 
So obviously Hawaii wasn't one of the original 13 states. It was a colony before it became a state. And before Hawaii became a state, it had strict regulations of firearms. And there was a question to what extent that colonial history with respect to Hawaii's firearm regulations should have relevance to understanding the scope of the Second Amendment, right, as it applies to Hawaii. Right. Well, they're still under the Constitution. That's what they agreed to and where we are now. That's right. And so the court in Young, in this Ninth Circuit opinion, noted that various colonial firearm restrictions in Hawaii and also in other states were relevant to the interpretation of the Second Amendment for that very reason, that even though they weren't yet states of the United States, they still were bound by the U.S. Constitution. And how do the founding fathers play into it? I mean, we have uh, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, who carried weapons for their self-protection. How does the, our own history in, in uh, the Second Amendment relate to this? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting that there, it's frequently noted by gun rights advocates that there are certain statements by founding fathers uh, about the need to carry guns in public Frequently, those, those statements are taken out of context. So, for instance, um, you might hear quotes from George Washington uh, about the need to carry guns when he was on military expeditions, or quotes from Thomas Jefferson. And there, there was one letter that he sent to his nephew, for instance, when he said that the most important form of exercise that his nephew should pursue is the gun, and noted that the nephew should always carry a gun with him on his walks and not books, he said. And that is taken as a demonstration that the Founding Fathers were in favor of a broad right to, to, to bear arms. But in this particular case, that, that history wasn't at the center of the analysis that the court did. Frequently, because it tends to get taken out of context, that history of anecdotes of Founding Fathers carrying guns in one capacity or another has not been the driving force in terms of the Second Amendment analysis. Well, there is a, a, a pretty complicated Second Amendment to kind of dissect. It has a number of clauses, a well-regulated militia necessary for the security of a free state, the right of people to both keep and bear arms. Interesting concept from the standpoint of the, the dissent in uh, this Ninth Circuit on Monk case. Boy, they just really ripped a new one about the right to bear arms. Yeah, that's one of the one of the interesting things in the dialogue between the majority and the dissent in this opinion. Both did historical analyses. Both could be framed as originalist opinions, trying to understand the original public meaning of the Second Amendment. And one of the, the, the things that the dissent points out is that the Second Amendment protects a right to keep and bear arms. Both of those verbs are there. And in the dissent's view the right to keep arms and the right to bear arms should be construed as co-equal, co-extensive, protected just as much. And this was a major point of disagreement between the majority and the dissent. The majority viewed the right to bear arms as having a different scope, the right to carry guns as having a different scope than the right to keep arms within the home. Right. How do you parse the word bear as it relates to arms? I mean, is it, does it relate at all to the militia? Does it relate at all to uh, necessary to the security of a free state? In other words, is it tied to something like a National Guard? Is it tied to uh, the militia as it, were, as it was formed with the Revolutionary War Army? How does that fit into it? It's a great question, and it's a, a question that is still being debated. 
it, it's important to put all of this into the context of where the Second Amendment has come over the past decade, 12 years or so. In, in, in the 2008 case of District of Columbia v. Heller, the Supreme Court essentially separated that first half of the Second Amendment, the half, the part about the militia, from the second half, the right to keep and bear arms, and reoriented or oriented the Second Amendment not around service in a militia, but rather around private self-defense. So in that interpretation, the keeping and bearing of arms in the Second Amendment, as it was interpreted by the Supreme Court in Heller, is not so much about militia service as it's about private self-defense. Now, as it were, Heller did not deal with the question of the scope of the Second Amendment outside the home. It was a case about keeping arms in the home. So there is still some debate and some argument about whether or not, when it comes to the question that Heller didn't decide, the right to bear arms, whether that could still have a military connotation. Though most of the courts to consider this are, 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 are sticking with the self-defense centered Second Amendment as it was interpreted by Heller. When you talk about bearing arms and whether it's bearing arms inside a home or outside a home, how does the social aspect of what's been going on lately play into this? I mean, we've had, what, 11 mass shootings since the beginning of the year and schools barely back in session yet. Thankfully, I don't know of any that have happened in schools yet, but that's largely because there hasn't been school. Yeah, well, and, and, and this is where there's an interesting policy conversation that's been going on. It's been going on over the past 10 years, and it's certainly heightened over the past year where you saw demonstrations of open carrying at state houses in Michigan and other places. Critics of the practice of open carry point out how the visible presence of a firearm can alter behavior. It can either increase violent behaviors or it could suppress behavior like speech of other people. And, and because of the fact that a lot of Americans who aren't carrying guns openly might be shocked or scared by the presence of somebody, a stranger carrying a gun openly, the NRA actually in 2014 had written an open letter condemning open carry protesters in Texas and state, stating even that the open carry is downright weird. Those are the words that the NRA used at the time in 2014. Now, the NRA quickly walked that back and now supports a robust open carry right, but that just demonstrates the fact that there has been a recognition that there's something different about open carry of guns in today's society than concealed carry. And the open carry movement to try to normalize this behavior has continued to be more and more controversial, especially, as you mentioned, given recent events. Right. How do we distinguish somebody who carries a AK-47 slung over their back from the right to open carry compared to somebody who's going to walk into a grocery store and shoot it up? How do you tell the difference? It's hard to do. And this is one of the, the, the criticisms of pol that police have when asked about open carry. And there are some examples in recent years, for instance, of people not being able to differentiate somebody openly carrying with ill intent from somebody openly carrying without that ill intent. So for example, in Colorado Springs, Back in 2015, a concerned resident dialed 911 because a man was casually walking down the street with a rifle, and the 911 operator responded that, well, you have a right to do this in Colorado. Well, that person ended up shooting several people, shooting and killing several people. Um, and there are other similar anecdotes like this where there's some confusion about 
the intent of a person who's openly carrying a firearm, a long gun. So in Dallas, where I am, for instance, in 2016, there was a shooting of police officers and law enforcement afterwards said that they were struggling to distinguish between people who were legally carrying guns openly and the gunmen they were trying to find and apprehend. Yeah, it seems almost impossible to be able to tell the difference. Yeah, it, would, it, it, it certainly presents challenges for the police to the extent that this is normalized. I mean, it's not just for the police, it's also for, for, for people who uh, just see a stranger with a gun. So there are, there are examples, for instance, in Virginia, in Charlottesville, Virginia, a few years ago, where people dropped their groceries in a grocery store and ran out of the store because somebody was walking through the store with a rifle slung across his back. I admit that that might be my reaction in this day and age. <laughs> and, and, and the frequent response is, well, I'm just exercising my Second Amendment rights. I'm exercising my rights to do this. Yeah, and I'm exercising my First Amendment rights to walk out. <laughs> Not that that really applies. Well, you, you teach this subject. You lecture on this subject. Where do you come out on the Second Amendment? What does it mean? I mean, is, is uh, Young correct? Are we going to see the Supreme Court correct this? Or where, do, where does it sit? Well, where this is going to go is very much an open question, especially given the changing composition of the Supreme Court. Over the past few years, there's been a lot of speculation about why the court, in terms of why the court has been rejecting so many Second Amendment cases. And in fact, after Heller and its companion case, uh, case McDonald, which was decided two years later and incorporated the Second Amendment to apply against state and local governments, there have been over 150 petitions to the Supreme Court that have been rejected. And a lot of the speculation with respect to that had to do with where former Justice Anthony Kennedy might come out on the Second Amendment. And so when Anthony Kennedy stepped down and was replaced by now Justice Kavanaugh, there was a sense that the, the Second Amendment was going to get more attention at the Supreme Court, in particular, its understanding was going to expand as compared to how it's been interpreted by the lower courts. There still haven't been any big Second Amendment cases decided on the merits at the Supreme Court since the, the, the recent turnover of justices, but there surely is an expectation that more cases are going are gonna to go up. I personally have a hard time seeing the Supreme Court taking the, the same view of the history as the majority did in this Young case, just based on some of their past precedent. But it's hard to know for sure. It's like reading tea leaves. It's always a it's always a guess. Well, let's talk about the regulation of guns. Uh, you know, certainly in the Second Amendment, it's mentioned that it's supposed to be well regulated, whether you fall into a militia or not. What aspect of gun regulations are are currently allowed and what can we expect to see coming down the road from uh, the current administration? Well, the vast majority of challenges, Second Amendment challenges over the past decade have in fact failed. In other words, courts are upholding challenge laws. So even though Heller, when it came out in 2008, led to fears or hopes, depending on what side of the issue someone is on, that gun laws were going to fall like dominoes, that hasn't actually happened in practice. So in terms of what laws are allowed, the vast majority of the sorts of regulations that generally get discussed have been viewed as permissible by the lower courts in the face of Second Amendment challenges. So this would extend to things that are 
or talked about like background checks or restrictions on so-called assault weapons and large capacity magazines have been overwhelmingly upheld. And even concealed carry restrictions on carrying firearms concealed in public have largely been over uh, upheld with an exception out of the DC circuit. So most of the gun regulation that tends to get discussed is not prohibited in the face of Second Amendment challenges. Politics, it turns out, play a much bigger role in stopping gun regulations from getting passed. Certainly, we've seen the uh, examples of the NRA lobbyists cited up and down about the types of control that exists in Congress over that. It seems like the Biden administration may be proposing some type of assault weapon ban. Again, there was one in effect in the past. Where do you see that headed? most likely to a filibuster. So there are a number of bills that are pending right now or that have been proposed that range from expanding background checks. There's HR 8, which which is was debated in the Senate Judiciary Committee last week. There's a, a bill that is trying to close the boyfriend and stalker loopholes to the Violence Against Women Act. Um, in particular, if you're if you're convicted of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, and you are the spouse of the victim, then you are prohibited from having firearms. But that restriction doesn't extend to boyfriends and stalkers. So there are a lot of uh, bills and ideas that are getting discussed like this, including the assault weapon ban that, that you discussed. It seems like the one that's most likely to get some traction, if any, in the current Congress would be the notion of expanding background checks, the Manchin-Toomey legislation that has been proposed a few times, which is a bipartisan bill, has come close to passage, and perhaps that's going to get taken up again. I want to flip back for a second to the actual wording of the Second Amendment. There's a part of it that I, frankly, don't understand how it relates to uh, the amendment itself, and that's the very middle part, being necessary to the security of a free state. What does that mean? Well, these... This is a question that experts and scholars of the Second Amendment disagree about and debate. What does it mean to have a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of the free state? If you look back to the framing era when the Second Amendment was proposed, the overwhelming concern of the framers at the time was on the power of a tyrannical national government overtaking the states and disbanding the militias and creating the sort of regime that the Americans had just escaped after the American Revolution. In that view, the idea here is that a free state, the the security of a free state is guaranteed by making sure that a militia is capable of operating in the national defense. So we can have a National Guard quartered in our each individual state. Right. And that's one of the main interpretations. And through the 1900s, the Second Amendment was interpreted by and large as a militia-related right. And for instance, in a, in a 1930s case, United States v. Miller, the Supreme Court held that a sawed-off shotgun is not an arm protected by the Second Amendment because it has no relation to the well-regulated militia, which is necessary for the security of a free state. That, of course, that understanding, of course, was, has been called into question now by District Columbia v. Heller. Right. Does the phrase well-regulated apply to people or does it only apply to the militia? In other words, is that the basis why there's so much regulation of, of citizens or 
How does that work? To be sure, after the Heller decision, there's been less discussion about how the words of the first half of the amendment actually should be used to interpret the operative, what was called the operative clause, the right of the the the, uh, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. How does the first half actually influence the understanding of the second? And Heller held that that first half, the well-regulated militia part, neither limits nor expands the scope of the operative clause. In essence, it cut off all of that language from the meaning of the Second Amendment, which it then reoriented around private self-defense. So the big question that I think you're getting at here, Craig, is whether or not there's a role for bringing back, bringing that the, the first half of the amendment back into play as a tool for interpreting, limiting, or expanding the Second Amendment right. Exactly. And that, unfortunately, as of now, if that's something that people want to do, that has been largely foreclosed by the Heller decision. It would seem so. (laughs) So it seems that people have the right to keep and bear arms, and people have the right to keep arms in their home and bear arms to some degree out in public, subject to some regulation. How are we going to protect the citizens of the country who don't want to get shot by the people that are crazy enough to shoot others? This is really part of the debate about what is the appropriate extent and strength of the Second Amendment right. And it's something that wasn't decided by Heller. Now, even before Heller, the United States was awash with firearms. By, by some measures, there are 400 million or more firearms in the United States and in private hands. And those numbers were very high even before Heller. The question now, after Heller, is to what extent the Second Amendment still allows the sorts of regulations that we would have been able to pass before Heller. And, and, and by and large, after that decision in 2008, most firearm restrictions have been upheld. The bigger question is just one of political will. To what extent can you get through the politics, the gun politics, that tend to stop even very popular regulations like expanded background checks from getting implemented in the first place? What right do people have in in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you know, the beginning of the Constitution, how does that weigh against the rights of the Bill of Rights? I mean, in particular, the Second Amendment. I mean, I have a right to freedom of travel. I have a right to go to businesses and so forth and travel around without fear in pursuit of happiness. Certainly not in pursuit of happiness if somebody's behind me with a gun. Yeah, so this is one of the the big debates right now is how to balance the Second Amendment right against the other rights that we cherish as Americans. So, for instance, the right to free speech, the right to, to, to protest, to assemble. To what extent do those rights trump the right to bear arms or vice versa? And as, as you mentioned, the right to life or, or some of the more abstract rights to just pursue life in, um, in a way without fear of gun violence. Now, of course, there are two sides to this debate whenever it happens, because the gun carrier will say that the gun is enhancing his or her ability to live peacefully. And on the other hand, the person who chooses not to carry a gun and would prefer there, there be fewer guns in public says the opposite. So balancing these interests on both sides is by and large what the courts have been doing over the past 10 years. And generally they're finding that the interest 
the public interest in stopping armed violence is sufficient to overcome the Second Amendment interest that is burdened by the given regulation at issue. And that really extends to all the sorts of regulations, more or less, that we tend to talk about. And where in the Constitution are they drawing from in order to establish the right of that of people to be free from violence? Is it the right of the right to assemble and so forth? Is it how does or is that just simply one of the innate rights that exist in the Constitution under the penumbra? Right. Well, that could that, that could be the interpretation with respect the light to, to the right to to live peaceably. The way that this tends to play out in. Second Amendment jurisprudence is that when a court is faced with a Second Amendment challenge to a law, say a background check law, the court will first evaluate to what extent the the Second Amendment right is impinged. After doing that, it does something that the court does, the courts tend to do in First Amendment cases and in other sorts of cases, which is apply tiered scrutiny to whatever the restriction is. So asking, for instance, under intermediate scrutiny, whether or not the public interest in background checks is sufficiently related, or the public interest in preventing armed mayhem or or, or violence is sufficiently related to the background check law so as to pass muster. Because even if the Second Amendment right is impinged, that does not mean that the government cannot regulate the government just has to show a good enough reason to be able to do so. And that could be, and that frequently is, preventing unnecessary deaths and injuries. The old public safety argument. The public safety argument. There you go. Right. It's compelling, they say. Well, for me, it is. I, I think I would uh, rather not be one of the ones that on the, on the other end of the barrel, uh, you know, having been served in the military, I think I understand what that means. But it's a good debate. Well, Eric, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program, so I'd like to take the opportunity to invite you to share your final thoughts as well as your contact information for our listeners to reach out to you. Sure. Well, I, I guess the, the final thoughts is that what is, what's going to happen next here? Well, this young case, you mentioned it's made a big splash over the past week. The, uh, the, the, the plaintiff in that case is going to have about 150 days, I believe, under the current Supreme Court rules to seek a petition for cert to see if the Supreme Court will intervene. There's a steady flow of other Second Amendment cases. So I think that this is certainly an issue for everybody to, to watch. And I wouldn't be surprised if in the next year or two, the Supreme Court decides to enter the fray and decide on the meaning of the Second Amendment outside the home. I'm happy to share my contact information. You can feel free to email me at erubin, R-U-B-E-N, at smu.edu. And my Twitter handle is Eric, E-R-I-C-M, Rubin, R-U-B-E-N. Great. Well, Eric, as we wrap up, thank you very much, Professor Eric Rubin. It's a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for having me. And for our listeners, if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.